Hey, Rob here, and this episode of the Cricket Table Podcast is sponsored by Audible. If you're like me, you're looking for a little distraction these days. Luckily, Audible has thousands of audiobooks right at your fingertips. One of my favorites is Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, in which author Brian Raftery covers several movies we've discussed on this very podcast. To check out that title and so much more, start your free 30-day trial today over at audibletrial.com slash crookedtable. That's audibletrial.com slash crookedtable table. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. You can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers. Drop us a rating or review if you can. And this episode, I am honored to welcome back to the show, John Cohorn. Welcome back, number three. Thanks so much, Rob. It's a pleasure to be back, especially in this kind of strange time we find ourselves in. Yeah, we were talking about that a little before before starting the show, how how much this this movie we were talking about 2002's equilibrium this episode uh how much this movie it feels relevant and like we're about five to ten years away from this um which is a little bit of a bleak way to start the episode but there it is right we'll just put it out on the table and see yeah. where it goes from there <laughs> so um so the last the first time you, you came on we talked about john wick uh, I checked with you before. You said you have not seen Bill and Ted Face the Music yet. Is that That's correct? correct? That's correct. Strangely enough, with all of this time that we've had at home, uh, aside from covering a, a remote festival recently, my, my movie watching started at a high point and really took a dip. I'm, I'm behind on a few things that I really should have seen by now. I'm behind on this year's releases, but I'm... I've actually used this time. I'm, I'm watching some John Carpenter thing. I did an episode on Starman that will be posted by the time people hear this. Uh, but because of that, I went back and I finally watched They Live, which I had never seen. Oh, uh, wow. What a great Assault film to watch this year, too. Right? Right? So much. I was, yeah. Um, Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, I have Prince of Darkness uh, out from my local library in the other room. Oh, uh, wow. So I'm, I'm catching up with some of my Carpenter uh, blind spots. But But yeah, so... I would highly recommend as a palate cleanser from Equilibrium, uh, Bill and Ted face the music because it's very different version of our, uh, of few of the future. It's very hopeful in tone. This movie, I think kind of gets there, but it takes a while. Um, and you know, we, we were talking sort of before, before, uh, the show started about how this movie, I feel like, you know, we talked about John Wick, the first episode, this movie has a lot of elements of that. Uh, and sort of feels like a, has a, a certain kinship with it, which we'll get into. And then on your second, uh, your second episode, we talked about Event Horizon, which right. is sort of that that late '90s, early 2000s sci-fi movie that has a cult following, kind of like Equilibrium, where people that have seen it are like, "That movie fucking rocks." But most people <laughs> are like, "What is that? What are you talking about?" And, yeah, this... I, and I think this is like this movie is like the perfect synthesis of the first two times you were on the show. That's a good way to look at it. And I, I don't know that Equilibrium has quite the the cult following that Event Horizon got. But right. uh, also, um, Equilibrium never in the United States had a theatrical release. So if people discovered this, most of the time they discovered it in the video store on the shelves. Because by the time this hit DVD, 
DVD was in full swing and video mm-hmm. stores were still a thing. So, uh, you know, you'd have a conversation with, with like myself as a clerk or a customer coming in and it kind of spread by word of mouth. Uh, it definitely is a cult flick and, and does incorporate a lot of influences of some of the other movies we've talked about. I think in a way that works to the movie's benefit too, because it's, it's a really solid movie, but I think part of why people are so enthusiastic to recommend it is because it is so underrated because no one has seen it. And it's, it's notoriety is so, uh, I don't know, so opposite. It's, uh, it's actual, I'm not, I'm not explaining this well, but you know what I mean? Like it's so underrated. And I think because nobody's heard of it, people are kind of elevate like, Oh my God, you have to see this. Not because it's the best movie in the world, but just because it has things to offer and no one knows that it exists. For sure. And it, it is the it is the perfect example of the kind of thing that you could pick up off the, the shelf at a video store or off the shelf at your house and show someone. And just uh, the little bit of information they're going to see on the front and the back of the box is probably going to be enough to sell them. You got Christian Bale, top line credit. Uh, you got Emily Watson and Tay Diggs. You've got this... Uh, ridiculous hyperbole i'll just put it out there but the the tagline on the front of the box says forget the matrix (laughs) but then then you take a look at the back and you know it got two thumbs up from ebert and roper and uh richard roper is uh quoted as saying you know spectacular gun battles and fight scenes Uh, and you can kind of see uh just from the iconography that's shown on the box yeah this is pulling from the same uh pool of ideas as the matrix and uh some people would say rip off and there may be some of that in there as well. Uh, but if you're interested in these kind of things, just a quick glance at the box and an enthusiastic word from another movie fan is usually going to be enough to sell it. I feel like it was that period. We sort of talked about this too, that right be either like dark city and uh, this movie and a lot of movies were sort of lumped into that matrix, basically any sci-fi movie where people wore leather and sunglasses or some combination thereof (laughs) was considered, oh, this is just like the matrix. I mean, I talked about dark city on this show with Jeff Johnson and, uh, it's, that's not movies, nothing like the matrix minus the, the, like the leather, maybe some of the, you know, the themes like the neo-noir and that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's not like plot wise, it's nothing like the matrix. It's quite different actually. Um, but yeah, I think this movie kind of gets unfairly lumped in with uh, with a lot of the lesser entries on that list. And, you know, you wanted to talk specifically, and so did I, about where this sits in Christian Bale's career. I think we should just have a have a little Bale corner before we, we launch into the movie itself. No, I, I think that is, I think that's the perfect place to kind of start this off. So this was the second movie uh, that came out in 2002 that, that Bale took a starring role in, uh, the other being Reign of Fire, which mm-hmm. uh, was a fairly large theatrical release here in the United States. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, that's a Christian Bale, uh, post-apocalyptic uh, fighting dragons with helicopters and things like that. <laughs> I've, I've not seen it since probably 2002 or 2003. Um, but, you know, so that was just a couple of years after his turn in American Psycho, which for a lot of people, that was what really uh, grabbed their attention. Um, you know, he had been acting for years before that. Uh, but American Psycho, especially in the the like, 
uh, genre and horror realms really made people uh, sit up and take notice of, of who he was. Uh, but then you take a look at what's going on in the few years after this movie came out. And, you know, uh, within just a couple of years of this movie coming out, uh, he starred in uh, Brad Anderson's The Machinist. And yeah. anyone who has seen that movie has an indelible image of Christian Bale in their mind, uh, just from the extreme weight loss and body transformation that he underwent for that film. Uh, I mean, not to, not to belittle uh, the comparison, but he looked in the latter portions of that film uh, like pictures of, of people that you saw from concentration camps. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he pretty much starved himself to death for that role. I, I heard a, a quote somewhere, and I don't know how accurate this is, but he said that his diet on that uh, on that movie for quite a while consisted of a glass of water, a cup of coffee, and an apple a day, and that's all he had. Jeez. But then one year after that, you've got him uh, in Batman Begins. And again, he's completely transformed his body. Um, but the intensity that you see in those, in those two specific roles that came after, uh, you can see a lot of that going on in what in some ways is a kind of restrained performance for much of this film. Yeah, I, I think I actually first saw him in Shaft, the 2000 Shaft. Okay. Came about the same year as American Psycho, but it was right yeah. in that zone where he got so many roles because of, of playing Patrick Bateman in American Psycho, yes. uh, which we've also covered on this podcast uh, because of how well he plays that sort of cold, distant, non-emotional. That's like kind of his, his, his jam right around this time. Yeah. Uh, in the machinist, even he's distant in a different way. Cause yeah, for people that haven't seen that, which I actually really like that movie. I think it's really interesting to talk about. Um, He's an insomniac who hasn't slept in like what, a year or something. Right. And so he's sort of out of it, but for a different reason. Uh, and, I, and I think that that, el that element of his uh, capability as an actor really lends itself to the Bruce Wayne side of, of Batman. So it's, it's in that weird stage where people know who he is, like in the industry, but like moviegoers don't really, maybe the face is familiar, but they don't really, you know, he hasn't really crystallized himself as a leading man. Right and to that, you know, that willingness to physically commit to his roles, you would, it, it's amazing to me, you would think that a lot of actors of his caliber at this point would kind of stop doing that, but he's mm. still, every few years, you know, The Fighter and then uh, American Hustle and like, The Big Short, like he, every few years he puts on a bunch of weight and then loses a bunch of weight, Vice, it's just like, wow, right. um, I'm, I'm impressed that he, he, you know, goes for it in that way. And I, I believe that maybe it was after Vice, but sometime within the last couple of years, I, I think he's made the statement that that uh, the extremity of those changes is probably in his past just because mm -hmm. he can't keep doing that to his body. And, and right. he, he basically said, yeah, I don't want to die. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's nothing short of amazing that the types of physical changes that he underwent for these roles. And um, in, in reviewing some of the director's comments uh, around Equilibrium, uh, I guess he had spoken to some of, uh, some of the crew who worked on Reign of Fire before they, uh, before they filmed uh, Equilibrium. And I guess he wasn't 
uh, fully immersed in in like the method acting when he was on Reign of Fire. Uh, but you know, Kurt Wimmer said that uh, during the filming of of Equilibrium, he wasn't he wasn't Christian Bale. He was he was Preston throughout. Yeah. Wow, that's that must have been a very uncomfortable set then, because <laughs> large sections of this movie are very uh, une- uneasy to watch, and I think part of that is because of you know uh, sometimes on this show we kind of skate past the political stuff, but I think that's kind of in- unavoidable here because I agree. basically, you know, <laughs> my wife even you know we watched this uh, a few days ago. She had never seen it before. She was like, "Yeah, I think you're going to talk about." <laughs> the political stuff during this one. I'm like, I know, I know. First few years of the 21st century, World War III, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> do uh, Let's just, I think we, we're kind of keyed up into the movie itself. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer for Equilibrium right now. Cleric, I can only hope one day to be as uncompromising as you. You're a family man. Yes, sir, a boy and a girl. This is the lawful entry. We have a warrant for your wife's arrest. Remember me. Welcome to the underground. Do you know why you came? Yes. They trained you your whole life to fight these kind of odds. What can I do? I've heard the most disturbing rumor. Rumor, sir. A rumor maintaining that one of the cleric is actually attempting to contact the resistance. Then you know what I'm gonna do now. Preston, give yourself entirely without incident. No, not without incident. That was a little bit of the trailer for Equilibrium from 2002, written and directed by Kurt Wimmer and yeah, what happened to Kurt Wimmer, John? I was looking at his his uh, filmography too, and then by the end of this movie, I was like, "Damn it, do I have to watch Ultraviolet?" Because I, I don't know. <laughs> well, so I I will admit to having asked the same question leading up to this. I did watch Ultraviolet when it came out in the theaters, um, and the main reason that I went to go see it was based on uh, based on Kurt Wimmer and Equilibrium. And overall, I remember walking away from that film fairly lukewarm. Uh, I didn't hate it. Um, I just didn't like it. And over the years, I haven't found it that memorable, though I will admit to after having watched Equilibrium now four times in short succession, I kind of find myself wanting to go back and revisit it to see if I judged it too harshly. Um, But then we were talking about this a little bit before the show. Uh, After after Ultraviolet, in terms of directing, he hasn't done anything else up until this point. Uh, but he's listed on IMDb right now as the director of an upcoming remake of Stephen King's Children of the Corn, which I believe that makes it the second remake of that movie. And looking a little further into it, uh, this production has been going on in Australia this year during the pandemic. Um, and I heard that they um, drastically cut down the, the cast and crew and were working with local police and health officials to, to try to stay in line with um, 
uh, with all of the the guidance uh, in Australia. But I mean, it looks like that may be one of the the few, uh, you know, geared for theatrical films that that we have on the horizon that wasn't already shot before theaters around the world pretty much shut down. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be a good comeback vehicle, but it, you know, it's probably going to be the first movie that we see from him in about a 15 year period. Uh, he has been working pretty steadily as a writer. All the, I mean, he worked on things like the, uh, the total recall remake and the point break remake. Yeah. So. yeah not, not exactly inspiring much confidence. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I saw the total recall one. I was, I think I fell asleep. I think, I think it's not on DVD though. So it wasn't in a theater, but right. Yeah. Not, not, uh, any, not doesn't feel even re- remotely like total recall. So I don't know what was going on there, but, uh, but yeah, so Kurt Wimmer, uh, I, yeah, we'll see. I'd like to see more from him. I think there's a lot in this movie that obviously feels, I don't want to say derivative, but influenced by things like 1984. Like there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on here. So I, I think what he does bring to it uh, are the gankata element, uh, are uh, you know the performances from Bale, the sort of, I don't know if there's a lot of dystopian stories where you're, where the lack of emotion is so blatantly, uh, covered. It's not like the fulcrum of the entire of the entire world. Uh, right. Am I correct in that? Because I, I think I, I think that I think that's true. And if if you listen to either, so the the DVD that came out back in the early two thousands has two commentary tracks on it. One of them is Kurt Wimmer by himself, uh, and one of them is Kurt Wimmer and his producer uh, Lucas Foster. Uh, curious side note. Uh, the other producer on this film was Jan de Bont, who mm-hmm. uh, you know is known for speed. Um, but in both of those uh, commentary tracks, if I'm remembering correctly, um, he brings up the fact that he was, uh, you know, accused of plagiarizing uh, 1984 and Fahrenheit 451 right. and. THX 1138 and um, all of these other films. I think Metropolis is another one that, that he brings up. Uh, and he feels like those comparisons were, were pretty unfair and pretty harsh. Uh, and I don't, I don't necessarily believe that he wasn't inspired by these things, but he makes the point that, you know, none of those films uh, focused on, feeling as being the central issue you know they were focused on other things and so i i can give him that and and it is the um it is like you said that the kind of fulcrum that the the whole movie rests and hinges upon and in the movie what i love about it is that it makes you sort of confront how yeah you know it does the, the film does have a point in that sure emotion is the source of you know anger and rage and resentment and greed and blah, blah, blah. And all this stuff that, that in some ways it, 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 it's kind of, it's kind of right that that is the source of man's inhumanity to man, but it's also you're, you know, you're sacrificing everything. It's like, it's like, um, you know, there's a, a forest with a few diseased trees and you're like, let's just burn the whole thing down. It's burn like, the whole thing down. It's, it's not at that, at that rate, it sort of becomes, what's the point? I, I was thinking, um, during the movie, I was thinking about that that speech that uh, Robin Williams has in Dead Poet Society, where he's talking about but love and blah, blah, blah. these are the things we live for. Is is what I was thinking before we even got to Emily Watson's sort of version of that speech in this Precisely. movie. And I I think that's a really interesting idea to confront head on. That yeah, you know, 
they might be solving problems by doing that, but are they really, <laughs> uh, you right. know? What, what are they sacrificing right. for this solution? Um, and, you know, uh, I'd, I'd like to rewind just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you've touched on this in a couple of points, but the, uh, the movie opens very starkly. Uh, it's it's a black field with a white title card that goes into uh, this mixture of of text and narration, uh, talking about you know in the first few years after the twenty first century uh, we we got into World War Three, and it's backed with images from um, you know the the Blitz bombing raids and Saddam Hussein and. Uh, Stalin and, uh, you know, the detonation of the nuclear bomb and, and things like that, that in 2002 seemed so far removed from most people's experience. I mean, these were the kind of things that, yeah, you may have kicking around in your head and you probably learned aspects of in, in school, but we didn't really feel like, okay, we're right on the edge of this potentially happening again. You know, we were, we were, um, we were removed from 9-11 by about a year. Um, and so there was likely still some, some different fears that were very much in the public consciousness. But at least looking back on it, I don't remember it feeling like we were on the verge of potential world war or nuclear annihilation. Um, and then looking back on it now, almost 20 years later with today's uh, uncertainty in, in the world and, and with certain world leaders and things like that, uh, those images and that three, five minute introduction feels a little more ominous and prescient today than it did 18 years ago. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, and, and it's, the movie is not subtle with that sort of Nazi imagery, the, the flag, the, uh, the, the logo of uh, Libria is basically like you move those lines over a, a little bit and it's essentially a swastika. So it doesn't, it doesn't really, it wears that uh, pretty blatantly on its sleeve. And uh, I know I agree. It's, it, it, it was sort of uncomfortable to watch for most of the runtime until things start to, you know, start to develop. Right. Uh, just because it does feel like something that you, you know, you see in the media today, uh, so much of so much of a lack of empathy, a lack of compassion, um, and just blatant disregard for others, uh, just like right. constantly. That when you see a movie about a government who's essentially outlawing feeling anything, it it, it feels it feels like uh, the the natural end result of the track that we're at least currently on. Whether we shift gears in November or <laughs> whether we stay on this track, uh, right. it, it, you know, remains to be seen, but it's it sort of, it, it, it feels like the direction in which we're moving. It's just, you know, worry about yourself, do your job, you know, be as dispassionate as humanly possible. But then like, um, like Sean Bean points out, you know, he's saying, oh, you know, well, all these things we sacrifice and, and Preston is, is saying, you know, no war, no murder. And, and he has, he has that great line, uh, Sean Bean, whose character now I'm forgetting, um, whose character name I forgot, uh, he says, uh, "What is it that you think we do?" It's it, there. There's always going to be some someone in power abusing that power, essentially, unless right. there is an, another side to to keep it in check, basically. 
Right. And I love that right. sentiment. Uh, he would, his name was Errol Partridge. There you go. Um, and, and there, there are a couple of things that, that, uh, that I'd like to touch on real quickly um, about, you know, kind of the, the undercurrent, the, the feeling of, of uh, Nazi regalia and things like that. Uh, so much of the film was shot in uh, the former East Berlin. And so there's a lot of that really uh, severe kind of architecture. And, and there's, I think there's a, a, that goes a long way in, in kind of like cementing that feeling in the film. Uh, but regarding the flag itself, uh, again, this is one of these things that I don't know. Uh, I don't know how much truth is in this statement, but Kurt Wimmer claims in, in one of those, uh, in one of those commentary tracks that, uh, the design of that flag was uh, kind of sprung on him. Mm. That uh, it was it was a choice that was made by the the a designer in the art department, basically. Um, that you know his primary vision for the the symbol of the tetragrammaton was uh, just the four T's. And if you look at um, several of the other. Um, kind of prominently featured props throughout the film. Um, the gun mechanism that they use to inject the, uh, the prosium or uh, the kind of metal clipboard that they use in the uh, interrogation scenes. Um, there are just four T's, you know, without being in the, uh, without being in the circle and, and not uh, kind of rotated 45 degrees. Right. Uh, it, it almost looks like a, a solar cross. Uh, but yes, yeah, certainly when you see that on the flag, uh, I, I don't see how any modern viewer could take a look at that and not immediately think, okay, that's a Nazi flag. And you couple that with, uh, you know, the, uh, the militaristic figures throughout the, the film wearing, you know, these severe black uniforms or, or black armor or things uh, of that nature. Uh, it, it's a real easy uh, logical jump to make. And then you have the sort of melding together of government and religion where they, these, these, you know, Preston and Partridge and them are, are known as clerics. Yes. It's just, it, it's, it just, it's, it's really good. Like the, the world building is really strong. I think. Uh, the fact that they're the Grammaton clerics and uh, that this is sort of kind of their missionary work, I guess, mm. sort of for the, for the for the government on behalf of the government. And I, I don't know, I, I really love the way that that is all sort of married together. Um, meanwhile, we have, you know, Sean Bean getting the, the book of poetry of Yeats and I just, and of course, he dies naturally. Sean Bean. <laughs> of course. As soon as Sean Bean showed up, my wife was like, oh, he's going to die in this. I'm like, well, yeah, no. <laughs> it's kind of his thing. Right. Um, Especially I think at this at point, he, I think at this point, he's just like only gets scripts from his agent that he dies at the end. Uh, it's just, he's leaning into it. Well, but, so uh, yeah, the producer actually brought him in on this. They, uh, they had not filled that role by the time, uh, by the, by the time they started shooting. Uh, and the producer, Lucas Foster, brought him in specifically for that role. And uh, Kurt Wimmer has spoken about what a joy he was to work with and how easily he incorporated uh, any suggestions um, and kind of made that character uh, his own. He said that they had 
if I'm remembering correctly, he said that they had read something like 200 people for that role and uh, didn't find the right person and had so many people that didn't want to take it on because uh, it didn't have a very high page count. They weren't on screen that much. They didn't have a lot to say, but he viewed that role is as integral to the film. And it really is. I mean, yeah. uh, if, if you don't have Sean Bean's character, Christian Bale doesn't go on this journey at all. Right. Um, Christian Bale doesn't begin to question. Christian Bale doesn't begin to feel. Uh, and Bean brings such a gravitas to what could be looked at as a, as a small role. Uh, he just, he kills it. Yeah. Yeah. Pun intended. He kills it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I agree. And that, I feel like that is such, that was one of the questions I was going to bring up. It's like, do you think this movie does a plausible job at conveying Preston's arc and the way that it progresses and, and how, where he starts this movie a hundred percent on board with the Grammaton cleric. And at the end, spoilers, <laughs> leads an <laughs> uprising and joins the underground and kills air quotes father. And then, then again, and again, that's the other thing I wrote down. I didn't even get to that in my notes that the head of this organization, this city state of uh, Libria is known as father. And then he's DuPont slash father again, spoilers Mm -hmm. Um, it's talking about father's will you have to do you know go based on faith it feels like a very um, it feels like the movie is very critical not only of government but of religion as a as sort of a uh you know being manipulated as a control uh uh, instrument certainly well i i think that I, I do think that the movie has flaws and I think that there are things that it sets out to do that it doesn't fully, fully achieve. But I also think it does something that a lot of really great sci-fi and uh, a lot of really great anime does is, you know, that they posit this world and they don't explain a lot of it. You're just a, expected to accept it at face value. But if you start kind of like digging around the edges uh, it fuels your own imagination and your own ideas. So uh, Tetragrammaton is not really explained in, in the, the movie itself, but Tetragrammaton uh, refers to uh, the, the Jewish four-letter name of God that was not to be spoken. And so Tetragrammaton is, if I believe that, you know, that comes from, from the Greek language, uh, but it was kind of a stand-in for what ultimately came to be Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, and so then you have this, this deeper aspect of, okay, father and father's will. So yes, is it the divine will? And then you have that scene uh, where everyone is, is going in mass into this building or this staircase. Um, and you have all of the loudspeakers and and TV screens uh, that are talking about the drug that they're all on, uh, prosium, Mm -hmm. and and talking about how it is, it is the opiate of the masses. So yes, then you have, you know, you have things that tie in with with religion and all of these other things. Um, So yeah, there's so much that you can dig into there uh, that isn't fully explained. But then if you take a look at it too, yeah, with the, uh, with Christian Bale's journey, with Preston's journey, by the end of it, isn't he basically Neo? Like they didn't have, they didn't have the budget to have him and it wouldn't have fit story-wise, but they didn't have the budget to have him, you know, flying out of a cityscape after making a badass phone call. But there he is, you know, and he cracks that one final smile right before the credits roll. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it does what a lot of, of really good sci-fi does. 
Yeah. It's like, he's like, where we go from here is the choice I leave to you. <laughs> and then, right, and then right. smiles pretty much. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I love, I actually do think his arc is pretty well handled in this movie just because, um, you know, what Partridge says to him and sort of is, is the beginning of his awakening. And then the way that he, you know, he doesn't even do skip his, uh, what is it? I forget what they said. The, his morning um, interval. Interval. Thank you. His morning interval. It, it just kind of happens by accident, which I guess right. is just really good timing that he happens to drop it like the next day after Partridge is <laughs> saying. But whatever. We'll we'll give we'll give it to the movie. Um, and then it sort of becomes just a slippery slope. Like he goes there to get it replaced at his at his uh, and this is I'm paraphrasing my wife at his creepy son's behest. Yes, um, <laughs> which I, we'll get to the the sun later. Uh, I think sure. we should. <laughs> uh, well, where he goes to get it replaced, and that that building has been sort of shut down. It's you know not not open or whatever. So right. he's unable to. So it, it kind of by accident he starts to feel, and I think that that sort of that starts off the sort of snowball effect of him not wanting to go back because you know once you once you're it's like having your eyes closed for the for your whole life and then opening it up and are you, who's going to want to close their eyes again? Or, you know, if all you see is, is, is this is one room and now I'm thinking of the, the movie room and then you're let loose in the world, why would you ever want to go back into that box again? So it, it makes sense that that's sort of where, uh, that, that it happens in that way. And, and I love the way that, you know, the the little nuances that Wimmer uses, just the way his home is is so everything is gray and everything is bland as fuck. And and the little the way that touch is is like he's noticing little things, the sunrise, uh, the, the 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 way that like the um the escalator or whatever feels, just he's he's just noticing things for the first time. And I think that it's it's actually really well done in this movie. Yeah, well, it, to me it it's almost like uh, his his um, widening aperture of experience mm-hmm. is very much like when when he wakes up and starts to see the sunrise from behind the the window that has a film covering it, and yeah. he starts to tear at that film. And initially, it, there's a little hole, but he continues to uh, to tear it open and, and to widen it, um, and soon he's almost you know, overcome by what he's witnessing, which is something a lot of us take for granted on a pretty daily basis. It's just a simple sunrise and, and the activity of the world beyond your own four walls. And then what I love about his journey too, is that there's that sort of increasing overwhelming sense of awe and wonder about the world around him. But then on the flip side, he is now realizing, essentially realizing that he's a monster, that he has been, but the bad guy for this whole time. And so you sort of see like, you know, when he's discovers, I think he discovers the room of all the antiques, which again would make sense because they've been working on destroying these things for so long. This is kind of all that's left are these really old record players and things like that right. uh, are, are the only things that the, the Grammaton hasn't gotten to basically uh, where he has that like emotional breakdown set to Beethoven. Uh, yes. I think, I think that's, you know, he he realizes what he has done and, and he feels not only awe and wonder, but also shame and guilt and and fear and all these other emotions that like so he's he's 
our window into both the the positive and negative sides of having emotion. And I love that you kind of see that all weighing on him. And that's really a testament, I think, to Bale's performance above everything. Absolutely. And and I think you're seeing both sides of the coin at the same time. I mean, I can only imagine what it would be like to be a grown man and and really hearing music for the first time. But at the same time, you're realizing that you've caused the deaths of countless people. Uh, and in some instances, you have even delivered that death to those people, including some people that you know you might ordinarily have thought of as friends. And then there's that point too that I believe Emily Watson makes when when they're talking in, in an interrogation room. Uh, you know, uh, the word friends comes up and she asks him, do you even know what that word means? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if there is no emotional connection whatsoever, it's like, no, that's just another word. Like uh, they bring up uh, sorry, uh, you know, and you don't even know what that means. And so many of those things that uh, just become, you know, kind of automatic in the way that we relate to one another and and the world. he may have absorbed intellectually, but he doesn't know the actual experience or the actual meaning. And he's in very short order becomes Partridge where he now is hiding contraband uh, in his, in his home. And, and um, (laughs) yeah, not only that, not only, you know, his friends and, and other people, innocent people whose lives he's, he's taken, but he goes back and actually watches the video of his wife getting arrested and incinerated. And he sees himself standing there completely disconnected from what's happening, allowing it to go on. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty intense emotional uh, stuff that he deals with early on in this movie. And I think um, I think, yeah, I think Bale completely sells it. Absolutely. And and you bring up an, an interesting point, too, uh, regarding his wife. Um, there there were two actresses that that played his wife. Um there is the actress that is in that tape that he watches. Uh, but then in the flashback scene uh, where it actually shows her being arrested, uh, it's a different actress playing her. They couldn't get the original actress back. Uh, but the way that that flashback scene is shot is is really interesting too. When it is just showing Christian Bale or just showing the the police that are there to to take her away, it's all shot in a very like, subdued color palette really pushing towards like the the cold grays but any scene that has her in it including when she rushes over to kiss him before they take her away is shot very warm and with the with the color pushed and so even in that one brief scene uh there's there is a a dichotomy between um who he is who preston is uh under the effects of uh, uh, under the effects of the prosium and just kind of like the, the whole brainwashing effect of this society and who someone is that has started to break free of it. Yeah. It, I think she's even wearing sort of a red, a red robe in one of those scenes too. I think when she's in the condemnation scene. Oh yes. That, that seems to be kind of like their ritual garb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it is, it is kind of stark color, uh, color wise in those scenes as well. And I think the fact that the, it's worth mentioning that the only real like female characters of substance in this movie are Preston's wife who, who dies and whose death is, is <laughs> it's it, uh, basically I'm getting at how the, how, how much this movie fridges its female characters, which for people unaware is a term that derives from the world of comic books where 
uh, a female character is either kidnapped or killed or whatever to further the male uh, the male protagonist's uh, emotional journey. And in this movie, we have Preston's wife, who's killed in flashback, and then Emily Watson's character, I believe Mary. Who, Mary O'Brien. Yeah, who is killed in present. And yes. I, I think, I, I have very specific feelings about about this whole thing, but what are your thoughts on uh, on the the way that the female presence is, or lack thereof is represented in this movie and how it relates to to its themes? Because I have I have my own my own kind of take on that. Well, I, I think that uh, if if you are looking at the theme and the world that is being presented, uh, it probably makes sense. Um, if you are if you are looking for representation on film or uh, something that would pass the Bechdel test, this is not the movie that that right. is going to tick either of those boxes. Uh, but I could see in in an authoritarian society where uh, any focus on on you know what people think of and certainly thought of twenty years ago as quote unquote more traditional feminine qualities. Uh, if you'll pardon me for saying it that way, right. um, I could see how that would manifest itself in the story being told here. Uh, if if this movie were to be remade today, I I suspect that uh, that would be quite a bit different. I don't necessarily f- see it as a failure in the story that was trying to be told mm-hmm. for this film. Uh, but yeah, they, they absolutely get sidelined. Uh, the only other female character of note that's not just a passerby in a crowd scene, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is um, his daughter. Uh, yeah. and, and she, you know, I think she gets a scene where she's uh, flicking cereal out of her bowl and a scene <laughs> where the dog's licking her hand. And that's about the extent that's of about it. it. Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. I think I actually think it works in this movie. And it's funny too, because another recent movie that I've heard, you know, some, especially female critics sort of attack the lack of female, the the way that women are represented in there is Blade Runner 2049, which, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of like dystopian movies, but my, the way I see it is I think that dystopian films are more believable if women aren't in charge, if women aren't in power, if just because like you were saying with the theme of the, the like traditional feminine, you know, we live in a world where compassion, love, empathy, all these positive, warm <laughs> emotions are just attributed. They are labeled as female. Well, that's, that's girl stuff. We're men we over here, we work out and we get mad and we fight and all that stuff. And so it makes sense in a movie where empathy and emotion has been scrubbed away that you don't see a whole lot of women. It's just a bunch of, you know, it's just a bunch of white dudes running well, let, around. Let's, Anti digs, I guess. <laughs> let's just put it this way. If, if our own world had uh, a few going. more strong women in leadership positions, it might not be as dystopian as it is. Today. Right. Exactly. A hundred percent. That's kind of where I was leading to. I mean, look at yes. the current administration and the white maleness of that. And uh, the other side where we may, fingers crossed, well, we mm. may have our first female vice president. We're recording this just a few days after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and all the outpouring of, you know, support and stuff uh, and, you know, mourning of, uh, of her loss on, on not only, uh, a, you know, in the government as a person, as a justice. Now we have a, a seat that's open and who knows what the hell's going to happen with that. Um, but yeah, no, so that's kind of where I land on 
women, like, I feel like there's almost, and this sounds kind of weird to say, it feels like there's almost not a place for women in this kind of dystopian society because we went, if women were there, we wouldn't be in this dystopian society. So yes. I, that's, that's kind of my thing with it. I feel like it actually enhances the world building here because it's on the side of, of women. Look at, look at what male, uh, you know, complete male universal control does to a government basically. And, and to take that one step further, uh, look, look at what happens when people are completely, completely removed from and out of touch with their emotions. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that this is a, a uniquely American experience, but it's probably, we probably have gotten it uh, more so than a lot of other societies. Uh, you know, that's, that's not something that for a long time was, was valued in, in men or boys. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've got generations of, of men who get to, adulthood or, or places of leadership or places of power. Uh, and they have no idea what to do with these emotions. And what do we do when we don't know how to deal with our emotions? Well, we lash out, and we do shitty things. Yeah. Maybe not on the scale that appears in this movie, but then again, <laughs> maybe not that far off either. Right. Yeah. So I think it's actually to the movie's uh, benefit that the only person in it that is actually elaborating on the themes of the movie really is Emily Watson, where she's like, without all these things, breath is just a, a clock ticking. Like she's speaking the, the message of the movie and yeah, she doesn't make it because the, <laughs> the patriarchy essentially uh, <laughs> destroys her in this. But, um, but yeah, so it, it makes sense that a world that shrugs off individuality, as they say at one point and in, encourages compliance and all that would be uh, essentially completely male driven. Um, we haven't even, to, to, to talk about Emily Watson for a second too, I was realizing as I was watching this that some of the first movies or the movies I've seen the most of her in are Punch Drunk Love, Red Dragon and Equilibrium, all of which came out in 2002. So this is like Emily Watson's year, I guess. You uh, are having my exact same thoughts because <laughs> those those three movies are the ones that I have seen the most. And Probably the the first ones that that I really took notice of of who she was and and her work as an actor, um, I had not realized that they had all come out in the same year until you just said that. <laughs> wow! So I, she and she and Christian Bale both were on fire at that period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that may have been a bad choice of words, given what happens to her. Oh, in this movie. <laughs> well, <true>. sorry, <laughs> sorry, Emily Watson. You're okay. Um, so the other, you know, person we haven't talked about really much is Tay Diggs. And again, Tay Diggs was, again, these are like three stars that are like either about to explode or right on the verge of like in their, in their, like in their hot zone for, for their careers. Cause Tay Diggs here was like right around, right after a couple years after the best man, he was in like Brown Sugar and he was right, he's this same year he was in Chicago. So he's in like a lot of popular movies around this time. And he's, you know, keep, kept working, but I feel like this was him at his, at his high point, like just a few years after he helped Stella get her groove back. Uh, and and uh, I think as, as charming and charismatic as he is as an actor, I kind of feel like he was almost somewhat miscast here just because the whole point of this movie and this society is they're emotionless. And I feel like Tay Diggs just never can stop smiling. Did you pick <laughs> up on that at all? Cause Tay Diggs just was like, he's like the camera's on. I need to, 
I need to do my my Tay, you know, my charming Tay Diggs thing. Um, well, I did. I did pick up on that, and the first time I watched it, I saw that as a flaw. Mm-hmm. But listening to uh, listening to Kurt Wimmer talk about the making of this movie, uh, he makes a couple of points. The, the first point is you're not going to cast someone like Tay Diggs that has a smile like he has right. and not I mean, put it yeah. to use. Uh, but his thinking more so than that was that, um, you know, what, what is more frightening than an empty smile? What is more frightening than someone trying to fake emotions that you know are not there? And, you know, yeah, I, I kind of get that. I mean, think about the smile on, on someone's face like, uh, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or um, somebody like that. Yeah, that's that's terrifying. And then that kind of got me thinking a little bit more. Um, you know, his character, uh, it's said a couple of times, is is versed in the intuitive arts. Mm-hmm. He's supposed to be able to figure out what people are thinking and feeling before they do. And so it, it made me think, okay, well, what if part of it is that he's picking up on these emotions that are breaking through from Christian Bale's character, John Preston, uh, and I don't think that that's ever alluded to in the film. It was just one of these thoughts that I had. Uh, but yes, it, that could very easily be argued that that's a flaw in the movie. <laughs> not, and it's not a knock on Tay Diggs. I love Tay Diggs. Obviously, yeah. he follows me and the rest of the world on Twitter. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's cool to see him in this movie. It's just, yeah, I felt like that particular aspect. It's like, then if if you don't want to waste Tay Diggs' smile, then I don't know. Maybe Tay Diggs is not the right person for this role. I don't know. <laughs> it's cool to see him there, though. But yes. yeah, I li- and I like what he does with the character aside from that. That just felt out of place to me. Uh, I-, I do really like the fact that William Fickner shows up later in this movie. Just he's the, he's the classic late in the film. Like, oh, my God, William Fickner, what are you doing here? I completely forgot he was he was in this movie. And I think he brings a lot kind of like Sean Bean, he brings a lot with limited screen time as well. Did you catch him earlier in the, earlier in the movie? I did. And I was, and I think for us, I think I I noticed William Fickner in that, in that shot. And then I immediately sort of forgot again until he showed up because I I hadn't seen this movie in uh, at least a decade. I had forgotten that he was in that crowd scene earlier towards the beginning of the film until rewatching it. I remembered that he showed up towards the end of the movie, but I got one of those stupid grins on my face when you see him in the crowd and he's like one of the first people that stands up and claps at the end of the speech. Right. So what is it about William Fickner? Why do, why, why do we love William Fickner so much? Because he really is one of the, I would say one of the preeminent character actors in movies today that just, shows up everywhere and is just sort of the the secret weapon that the movie the filmmakers tend to break out like you know midway through no i i think you're right i think he is one of those character actors like maybe william h macy that uh, no matter who the character is no matter whether he's playing a good guy or a bad guy uh he's just somebody that you love to see uh, you know i can't really think offhand of anything that i have seen him in as a leading man you know he's always a character mm. actor a supporting actor uh but he's just eminently watchable yeah yeah he is and my wife actually pointed out that he was in the dark knight with christian bale which i which yes. they don't have scenes together but i i i, I had he was the uh, bank manager right yeah 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who, who takes shots at the Joker uh, and his gang and is like, you and your friends are dead. Yeah, that whole thing. He's, which he, again, instant, like, instantly makes you root for this guy um, in, that, in that one opening sequence uh, of The Dark Knight. Uh, I wanted to talk about Gunkata because we haven't really gotten into that a whole lot. Uh, and that, I mean, that's a whole other thing that, that we do have to talk about. Yeah. So yes, please, please begin. So Gunkata, basically a, a martial arts style of gunfighting, which I th- believe Wimmer created himself for this film or, or was inspired to create. Uh, and again, it sort of feels not too far away from John Wick and things that we were talking about earlier. It has, it, 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 what, what are your thoughts on the, you know, the fictional style of gun kata in this movie? Cause I feel like when you first see it, it kind of, you, I feel like when you first see it, it's kind of either cool or ridiculous. Cause the first scene is that sort of where he's standing there and it's just like slow motion and he poses and he poses and he poses. But then as the movie progresses, you're at least I was like completely on board. I was like, hell yeah, gun kind of, you know, you're kind of like really <laughs> into it by the end because the action picks up, they use it much more creatively. And, um, and I, I think it's a really, it's a mix of the, the latter half of the movie really visceral. And that's another thing that I sort of came across too, is that the violent, the level of violence in this movie apparently was designed this way to be, progressively graphic like early on there's rooms full of people getting shot but you barely see a thing later and then by the end of the movie tay Diggs face gets sliced off i mean uh you know again not to keep going back to this but my wife was just like oh my god i was like oh yeah let's wait for it that i remembered i didn't remember william fickner early in the movie but i remember tay Diggs face kind of yes yes lighting off so gunkata and the violence i guess is what we're talking here yeah, well, so one one point that I'd, I'd like to make, uh, it can be both very cool and absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> and I, I think that both Gunkata is that. And also that kind of sums up a big portion of this movie to begin with. But uh, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, reveal myself as an even bigger and possibly different kind of nerd here. Um, back in the late 80s, um, so like when I was wrapping up junior high school go, uh, and going into high school, there was a role playing game that I think the first edition was just called cyberpunk, uh, later editions, uh, I think were called cyberpunk 2020 and then maybe cyberpunk 2069 or something like that. And now there's this cyberpunk game that's coming out that mm-hmm. stars the likeness of Keanu Reeves. So it's all interconnected. Really? But, um, Cyberpunk, the game, uh, in a lot of ways had a lot of uh, commonalities with what eventually became The Matrix. Uh, And one of these things were, you know, uh, you could um, basically just jack yourself with different skills and cybernetics and things like that. And one of the skills in the game was called Gun Fu. And the description of Gun Fu in the rule book was very similar to... Uh, how they describe the gun katas in in the idea of you know making the gun a part of your body and making every shot count um, and so when I first saw this, I was having like you know flashbacks to several years earlier where uh, me and and 
some guys that I w- were friends with would get together, you know, late at night or on the weekends and, and play this role playing game. And oh yeah, we all wanted gun foo. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so uh, Kurt Vimmer uh, created um, this this version of, of Gun Kata for the film, and you know, I'm sure it can be argued that a lot of other a lot of other uh, films tried similar things, but uh, he supposedly developed the the basic moves for this in his backyard, and he is the guy that is kind of shown in silhouette during the opening credits when it's talking uh, you know talking about all of the world building stuff. And then he wanted it to be kind of a fluid martial art, something more along the lines of Tai Chi. Uh, but then uh, one of the stunt coordinators on the film, I believe, uh, a guy named Jim Vickers, uh, he came from a more hard martial arts stance and he wanted it to be more influenced by that. Uh, and so there are aspects of both in what you see. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think it's cool. And yes, it's dorky, but I mean, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta go into this movie willing to suspend some disbelief if you're not willing to suspend your disbelief you're gonna have a bad time Uh, but if you can suspend your disbelief uh, this movie is badass and gun kata is a big part of it it's totally ridiculous it is i mean think about the the uh the one fight where he uh ejects the little clubs out of the ends of his uh yeah and is using (laughs) them to like bash through the guy's motorcycle helmets you couldn't eject and insert a magazine if you had those little things on the bottom of your gun and the configuration that they're shown. So, you know, it, it, it's not real. You got to think of it like a comic book or just right. a complete fantasy. Uh, but yeah, it's badass. And you do see echoes of it in things like uh, John Wick down the road. And the way that Wimmer shoots some of this is so cool. Like the, 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 Early, I think one of the first scenes, you get that like shot sort of from below uh, when he's like, you know, Preston's kind of going into like his his like finishing stance, I guess. Um, and then there's that scene with Tay Diggs where he wants to, um, I think he wants, he wants, I keep calling him Tay Diggs, but he wants, uh, he wants Preston to shoot uh, a suspect and it sort of uh, hard cuts to the gun pointing and it ends up like kind of being a deceptive. Yes. So like the way that the, the action is shot in this movie, I think is really, at times, very creative. Absolutely. That was, uh, that was the introduction to uh, Emily Watson's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tay Diggs is going, to, is going to just kill her there on the spot. Uh, and yes, it, it's like the, the frame just kind of slides over about 90 degrees. There is, there is some very creative stuff. And, and from the sounds of it, they were very limited on time for a lot of this. So some of these action sequences, uh, like the one that I mentioned earlier with the, the group of guys in motorcycle helmets where he's bashing through the visors with the butts of his gun, uh, supposedly they only had 30 minutes to film that and Christian Bale just nailed it. Um, in, those, in those commentary tracks, he speaks so highly of uh, Bale's commitment to this and his physicality and his preparation for it. Um, and also mentions that uh, his Bale's training as a dancer seemed to lend itself to uh, learning and adapting to all of these new things that he was doing in this film, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense uh, to go back to, to take the John Wick comparison a step further there is, of course, a scene in this movie 
where there's a bunch of dogs that are being put down oh, yes. by the uh, the clerics, I guess, or at least or the soldiers, at least. Their sweeper team, I think is yeah. what they call them. Yeah, and so they're being taken out. And my wife was like, well, why, why are they killing them? What did the dogs do? Why are they killing the dogs? And then when, when, they, when Preston picks up the one dog who sort of tries to get away, <laughs> my wife goes, aw. And I'm like, see, that's, that's why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's why they have to kill the dogs. <laughs> because they're adorable. And then you're, they make you feel something. So in a way, it's like art. So I, I, I wonder in this world if babies exist is, is another question. Maybe I don't want to know the answer to that. But, well, I mean, I guess they have to because because he's got two young children of his own. That's true. I, I don't know how that works then. To how do you how do you and, hold your your newborn child and not feel anything? I, I mean, but then again, how do you let your wife go to a certain doom without even being like, you know, sobbing something, yeah. any emotion whatsoever? But and I think this just goes back to the uh, goes back to the the point we were talking about earlier, where it it. It, in its world creation, it posits a lot of ideas that it doesn't feel the need to explain. Right. And, you know, that just results in, you know, 15, 20 years later, people like you and me are sitting around going, well, what about this? And right. what about that? And what did this part mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we were in, in rewatching the movie, it sort of becomes uh, a man on a mission movie, like halfway through where he is intent on wanting to, um, wanting to disrupt the uh, you know uh, unseat father basically and assassinate him and and it kind of you know he I think it hinges on that scene where uh, where we find out later he switched the gun with uh, with Brant where he's you know he goes into Dupont slash father's office and I I actually did remember that reveal about Brant being father yes, yes while I was watching I was like wait a minute this guy's actually <laughs> the you know the, and the guy that plays the old the father that's passed away the um sean pertwee who was from also on the horizon <laughs> and he got them too so i was yep. like hey that's alfred he's not father it's this other guy um so that uh, we we were noting the john wick uh, similarities when we were rewatching it the, the other when i was watching it for the second time or third time whatever the other day and then immediately <laughs> the next scene like or soon a few minutes after he kills a bunch of guys to defend a dog. And I was like, Jesus Christ, he, this is a thing. I was like, I think John has a, has like a, a type of movie. It's like <laughs> dog, the I, defenders of the dogs. It's yes, like the, the series yes. here. And, and ridiculous uh, gun slash martial arts. <laughs> um, so I just thought that was funny uh, with the, the dog thing. And um, it, it becomes that that's, I think that's when he busts out the little clubs on his guns actually in that sequence with the, the really suspenseful scene with the, uh, or maybe it's not, I don't remember when, when the dog so, is in the trunk. Uh, no, that, that is, uh, that's a different scene, Okay. but the scene where the dog in, is in the front is also one of the big gunkata sequences, mm-hmm. um, where he, uh, where he's surrounded by uh, a bunch of guys from the sweeper team. Uh, that is the scene where, uh, I think it was one of the only instances where Bale used a stunt double because he does that backflip where, where he's firing on people on either side. Right. Um, and he also, uh, he also has the, the two shotguns, one in either hand that he just racks, uh, you know, through the strength of his own arms, uh, holding the, the pistol grip of them. That, that's a pretty cool sequence. And one thing that's really noticeable in that that's not always noticeable in some of the other sequences, uh, he, when he fires his main pistols, 
occasionally they have gone in and post uh, and altered the muzzle file, uh, the muzzle fire to look like the uh, tetragrammaton symbol. Did you mm. notice that? I didn't notice that. No, I'll have uh, to go back and check. You'll it. have to look at it. It doesn't show up all the time. Uh, and sometimes uh, I think when uh, I think in the sequence when Tay Diggs has the uh, big uh, Heckler and Coke rifle, I think that that fire shows it sometimes too. But occasionally, if if you watch the clerics muzzles, yeah, the the muzzle fire has the makes the tetragrammaton symbol. That's really cool. And uh, also, apparently, they didn't have wires at all, so that was that's just a trampoline or something in that scene with the flip, yes. which is something I came across. So. Uh, so yeah, I love that. That, that. And that's really, that movie is, that, that scene is really when everything shifts. Like from then on, he's he's invested. Like yes. you can't, he, he had to start taking his doses again and just go back to to work the next day. Oh, I don't know, something happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, from that point on, we have the sparring scene with Tay Diggs, which I don't know if that's another reason that this movie kind of got the Matrix comparison, because that has a similar sort of sparring scene between right. uh, between colleagues. And um, and then it really becomes a battle of wits between Preston and Brant. And uh, it seems pretty early. It seems like pretty soon after that, Brant knows that it's him. And it's just trying to get him to prove himself or to, you know, trying to basically trying to, to get evidence that that's the case. There's right. a whole scene where Preston tries to have help the people escape. And they're like not moving because they're like, oh, this feels like a trap. And Brant outsmarts Preston. And uh, ends up, you know, taking them all out with a firing squad. Uh, then, of course, there's this, the the switch later where Preston gets one up on Brant, and it ends up being just, you know, Brant's whole purpose was to to sort of uncover Preston's uh, betrayal. I guess uh, I I really love where that dynamic goes, and uh, you know, we alluded to Brant's face getting sliced off, and I I like that moment not only because of the like. In, insane graphic violence in that moment but i also love that he rushes to fight preston like he thinks he's the main villain of this movie <laughs> and then right, preston right. And two, he's like oh here we are i'm the big boss and he just rushes him like this is going to be the big climactic battle and preston's like, yeah, no, i'm not here for you uh so i like that sort of instant subversion well i think that uh i think it's kind of interesting that in most of the instances in this movie where you have an action sequence, you have outbursts of violence, they're very quick. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they, they explode, they're dealt with, and then it's just bodies with one man standing. Yep. Um, and I think that part of that was due to budgetary restraints. I know that in the um, commentary with uh, both the producer and the director, uh, Wimmer mentions particularly that last fight with DuPont. There was something much more elaborate that he had wanted to do, but they were just running out of time and money to do it. Uh, but I think that what they ended up doing kind of fits that theme that you see throughout the majority of the film. Once the clerics get involved, when bi- when violence erupts, it's put down pretty quickly right. and uh, the uh the sequence with brant where he gets his face sliced sliced off i think is probably the uh the finest example of that you you hit the nail on the head he he steps out grabs that sword thinking that he's going to be the the big guy at the end of the level and he just gets taken down <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. And uh, I, I think we also should point out, I wanted to make sure I mentioned this, the score in this movie is really epic and, and really intense. And um, it's not on Spotify, unfortunately. So I couldn't listen to it there, but I believe it is on YouTube, but it's uh, the composer is Klaus Bedelt. And he's just, he's just a year before uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Curse of the Black Pearl, because he's a big Hans Zimmer uh, protege. And I think uh, I think you can tell in this movie. There's certain moments where the the music is really key to really drive this sort of you know sci-fi you know late night like Matrix-esque sci-fi uh, cyber well not really cyber but uh, sci-fi dystopian thriller. So I, I yeah. think that that battle sequence uh, and and all the action towards the end is really where uh, where the score and the music really shines as well. Well, I believe, I don't know how much of it, and I don't know which tracks, but I think that part of the score uh, was not written specifically for the movie as well. I think a portion of the music was taken from a, uh, uh, like a film score library so that they could save a little bit of money. Interesting. And, and specifically the, um, the recording of Beethoven, uh, I guess the one that Wimmer had kind of cut the scene to and really wanted to use would have cost them something like $75,000 just for that short sequence. Uh, so he had to find a different recording of it um, and recut that sequence to match the different recording. Yeah. yeah. I, I always like, I, you know, I'm, I listen to music scores a lot when I'm writing and things like that. So I really tend to notice like, I think I'm going to listen to that after we're done here. And that's, uh, that's another thing that the John Carpenter watches have been really big on. It's like, Ooh, I'm going to listen to the, they live score. And, oh, and definitely like, all that, that music is, is so great. Uh, we're getting sort of towards the end here. Uh, we did have the big reveal with father and, and uh, DuPont, as I, as I mentioned uh, that they had set a trap for him. Um, and I also wanted to mention the thing with his son. So, I, you know, my, earlier on, I, I alluded to the fact that, you know, like, you know, his, his creepy son, because his emotionless, like kind of dead-eyed son, like, did you take your interval? What are you doing? That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's suspicious of his father. And then ultimately it's revealed that, no, no, Preston, <laughs> Preston's been the creepy one. And this kid is just like trying to cover his own ass. Um, <laughs> and his sisters. Uh, what are your, your thoughts on the, that reveal and the fact that not only that they're, that his kids have been hiding the fact that they can feel emotions from their father, but that, that they've been doing it since their mother passed away. Uh, basically, you know, afraid of their father every single day, kind of walking on eggshells around him and sort of it recontextualizes like the entire movie, I think. I, I think it does add a, a good twist to the movie. Um, I, I like the I like the son's performance. I, like we mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the daughter doesn't really have much to do. The son is given the heavy lifting there. Um, but I also think it's another one of those instances of, of which there are a few in the movie where if you really look at it too closely or think about it too hard, right. it starts to fall apart. So if you just let the moment happen and go with it, uh, it it's pretty great. But if you start thinking about, okay, well, Christian Bale has to put all of his strength into pulling this mirror out so he can hide his things. How does that little kid do it? Get the things out without breaking any, put it back. Uh, it, it kind of, it kind of falls apart under scrutiny, but if you just go with the flow of the movie and think of it as like a comic book uh, or escapist fantasy, it's great. 
It's also, I think, kind of, uh, you know, it's it's a fundamental part of filmmaking or storytelling in general, because the emotions of that, the motion of that scene lands and we're invested in the the, the father-son dynamic, we don't really care about right, that as much. Right. We're just like, uh, maybe it was open a little, who cares? Don't ruin it. <laughs> you know, it becomes that kind of thing where, right. where if, if that had fallen flat, then we'd be like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, I think you're you're right about that. And it's probably, initially I sort of felt that moment happened really fast mm-hmm. uh, because I, I it, and from la- last time I watched the movie, whenever that was, I had uh, I had always thought that that was a, a, a more drawn out scene or something. And then when we, when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, that's actually really short to the point. And I had remember it still made an impact on me that I remembered that his son was also not taking his morning or, or uh, evening intervals. Right. Uh, and so I think you're, you're, I think you're right. I think the fact that they, they get in, they, they make that, they get that story point across and they move on, I think is probably in the best interest of the movie. I think so as well. I think so as well. And there is, uh, as, as things are kind of uh, nearing the, the end and it, it returns to give you just a brief uh, shot of the sun in class taking a test uh, as things are like exploding outside and the music's building, uh, you know, he looks up and he has a little bit of a smile on his face in class too. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely his father's son. Uh, interesting side note, I did read somewhere that uh, Daniel Radcliffe was one of the children that they uh, that they um, auditioned for that role. Yeah, I heard that as well. That would have been an interesting follow-up to Harry Potter and the, and the Sorcerer's Stone or, or whatever. Well, this came out in 2002, so I imagine they probably had already shot Chamber of Secrets when they shot this, it's it's unclear on the timing, but early in the Harry Potters, uh, that right. would have been that would have been the timing, and and probably by that point he would have just been too noticeable. I, I think it works it would, better. Yeah, with, it would have taken you out. <laughs> yeah, with a child actor. Yeah, and even even if he was a known child actor, you could probably get away with it. But a, a known child actor that was connected to such an iconic property, mm-hmm. that's all you're going to see. Yeah, as long as you didn't have Harry Potter. Or I don't know Haley Joel Osment or someone. Uh, I'm trying to think. 2002, who are like the big Dakota Fanning would have been too little, and and you know she she could have played the sister, I guess. Um, but yeah, so uh, I don't know. I really like this movie, and I was it was cool to go back and rewatch it for the first time in forever. This is because sometimes there's basically three kinds of uh, episodes of movies that we cover on the show. There's the ones that I've seen a million times. I was like, hell yeah, another excuse to watch The Matrix or John Wick or whatever. <laughs> Uh, ones that I'm like, what is that? <laughs> I guess I should watch that for the first time. And oh yeah, that, that's really good. I forgot about that. Perfect. Let's brush it off and, and check it out. And uh, this was the the latter most of those three. So it was fun to get a chance to go back and, and check this out. Uh, is there anything about Equilibrium that we haven't talked about that you wanted to make sure we covered? Because I think I'm, I'm just about out of notes here. I, I think there's a, a million things that, well, that yeah. we probably could dig deeper <laughs> and, and think of. Um, so the, the only couple of things that, that I want to, to mention before we wrap up, uh, I mean, it, it does almost seem like, uh, like they're setting it up for a potential sequel at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he does right at the end kind of have that Neo moment. And so you can't help but wonder what's next. Um, but you know, obviously that that did not happen. 
I believe that he tried to incorporate some of the bigger ideas that he had for equilibrium into his follow-up, which was ultraviolet. Uh, but I seem to recall either hearing him talk about or reading an interview somewhere uh, where he mentioned that movie in particular kind of being taken away by the producers after they had finished uh, shooting and that he wasn't very happy with with the end result and that you know that could potentially be why we haven't seen anything from him in gosh 14 years at this point give or take right and so it, it watching this again does make me interested in going back and rewatching ultraviolet just to see if you know maybe i can find something to like more in it this time or if i was too harsh so the the only other thing that uh, that I wanted to mention, I don't know if you came across this, but I, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. Uh, I was looking at some of the information on IMDb, and under the connections, it lists something called equilibrium balanced. And I was like, "What the hell is this?" And it yeah. was it it had like a 2018 date on it. I was like, "Did they make a sequel? Was I just completely unaware of it?" But no, evidently someone made a, a very, 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 very low budget, like short fan film that was intended to be a spinoff slash follow up to Equilibrium. Uh, I don't know if the completed uh, completed fan film is out there. There are a couple of like, you know, brief two minute teaser trailers or examples of their gun kata or whatever. It's a uh, it's it's rough, but uh, you know if if, uh, if you're interested and you want to check it out, uh, uh, some of the stuff is out there on YouTube. Uh, it, it's not it's not 2002 dimension quality, and you can take that however you want to. <laughs> um, well, a couple of things related to actually ultraviolet. I think because it's Mila Jovovich and it came out in the middle of the Resident Evil, you know, barrage of, of six million of those movies that we got. Right from Paul W.S. Anderson, her her husband. I just, I think I just always assumed that he did Ultraviolet as well because it, it looks like, change the outfit and you're like, well, that's Alice from Resident Evil, Resident right. Evil, Ultraviolet. I mean, the same difference, which is why I, I never actually give that a chance. And now that I'm re-remembering that it was Kurt Wimmer and now I'm kind of like, well, is that streaming anywhere? I mean, what's going on? Uh, so th- that's one, on the one hand, that that's one thing I wanted to point out. And then secondly, Paul W.S. Anderson, who did Event Horizon, which we talked about last time. And I feel like Event Horizon, Equilibrium could do with, you know, a dusting off in a t- television series or a, you know, like, I feel like this is the kind of movie that, not that I'm like any ever really 100% on board for remakes or reboots, but this is like the kind of movie that that storytelling t- approach is made for. You know, it's a, a good idea mostly effectively handled uh but nobody saw it nobody's heard of it <laughs> nobody knows about yeah. it you dust it off you remake you remake or reboot or sequelize that not you know a direct shot for shot remake of psycho for some reason you know yeah. that's the kind of thing that event horizon equilibrium things like that where you're like all right this is a cool world how do we play in this world more not necessarily overwriting what happened before but like in this world like 20 years later or you know, or a different story set in this world, that kind of thing. I think that I, it would benefit from that. I think with with something like that, the key to having it be successful would be not to try to 
uh, recast Christian Bale's character. Right, exactly. But to do something different in the same world. And if you look at the kind of things that Dimension Films was doing back in that in that area from like the the late 80s to, you know, 2008, 2010, they, I mean, they did in-house sequels to everything mm-hmm. and sometimes quite a few of them. So it's a little surprising that, that this didn't get any sort of follow-up, even if, you know, ultimately it wasn't very good. Uh, they were, they were in a studio that was well known for that. Uh, and I say that as someone who watched, uh, both of the direct to video from Dust Till Dawn sequels. <laughs> oh, I did too. I've seen uh, both the yeah Texas Blood Money and uh, Texas the, Blood Hangman's Money and Daughter. the Hangman's Daughter. Yeah, <laughs> and then both of the I, I did an episode that's going to be well, it will be posted by the time this goes out. The uh, the two straight to video Dark Man sequels. We did a, I did yep. an episode on the first Dark Man. Uh, I actually have the trilogy DVD box set for, the, <laughs> for Dark Man um, for some reason. But, uh, but yeah, so I, 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 you know, 100% agree. I mean, if this is the origin story for the uprising and the, like, the liberation of Libria, like you said, what comes next? That doesn't, right. Preston doesn't have to be the, the focal point. In fact, I feel like it would be more interesting to see what everyone else does now that this message has went out, right. uh, has gone out. Like what happens, at, what happens next in this world? Uh, I think, you, you know, you, there's that show on, uh, I think it's FX, the Snowpiercer show, based on the uh, the Bong Joon-ho movie. Oh, I haven't watched any of it. I haven't either, but from what I understand, it's not like retelling that story or anything. It's just, it, it, it acknowledges the movie as canon and it's set like, you know, seven years earlier or something like that. Okay. So it's like, that's kind of the way you do, that's how you build this franchise out. You don't, you don't, keep locked on to one character, right. especially if you're not going to get Christian Bale back for Equilibrium 2 20 years later, right. I'm assuming. Um, you know, and that's something that we talk about Star Wars a lot on this podcast. That's something that Star Wars needs to do. What is what is going on in the rest of the universe other than the Skywalkers? Like, is right. there anything out the other stories to tell? I think you show things from different angles and I think you realize how much storytelling potential there is there. If If you just give people the the support and the creative license right. to go and do it. Exactly. Uh, I, I mean, I, th- I think star Wars to an extent was caught in a trap after the first three films, you know, they were so successful and so groundbreaking and all of us wanted to know more. I mean, I, I spent decades wanting to know more. Right. Um, and so, you know, they they were, they were doomed not to make everybody happy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so if there's nothing else, John Cohorn, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Absolutely. Uh, I am a writer for Modern Horrors, and you can find me talking about movies on Twitter at The Horror Isle. Awesome. Well, thanks again for, for bringing Equilibrium to the table. It was, uh, it was a really fun movie. I, actually, as I was watching it again, I, I, I feel like it was better than I you know, than I thought it would be like, then I remembered it as, and I'm seeing that again in this year in 2020, I just did an episode not long ago on we're doing the Harry Potters this year. Like we did the star Wars movies last year, bad year to talk about Harry Potter constantly. Now I'm oh, yeah. <laughs> rolling thing. but uh, we talked about Harry Potter and the order of the Phoenix. And similarly, I was like, wow, this is like a movie about now and <laughs> um, in, in what it's saying about like, you know, fascism and, and uh, government control and, and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I felt like in a different way, this movie was 
very relevant. And I think it's it's more potent than than you would think, especially like you said, than it was 20 years ago, which is strange. But I think it's a, a testament to how how it's worth revisiting these movies years later and, and seeing them in a completely different lens. I agree. I it had probably been 10 years or so since I since I had watched it last. And uh, when I first put it on and and played those first you know five minutes or so, uh, I, I was questioning whether I made the right decision. Uh, I was questioning if oh man is this going to be too heavy? Is this not the kind of thing we need to dig into and right. talk about? Should should I you know second guess my choice and suggest something more fun? Uh, but I'm I'm glad that that we went back and watched it and I, and I do think it's an, a, mo- a movie that. Uh, unexpectedly, you know, has some things to say about where we find ourselves today and, and hopefully where we'll find find ourselves in the not too distant future. Yeah, I, I, I don't want us to live in, in a gray fascist world. <laughs> yeah, I don't want a morning interval or any any kind of inter- interval. I yeah. like uh, I like my music. I like my movies. I like my my art in whatever form it is it, it, to the point that, you know, uh, we're, we're watching the movie and they're, they're like, Oh, this take the, take this mirror away. The frame is illegal because yes. it's pretty. I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> man, no wonder your apartment sucks. Get, get, some, <laughs> get some posters or something. I like, God, um, <laughs> what a boring world to live in. Everybody's the same. Ugh, no, no fun. Not into that. So um, that, that's been the Cricket Table podcast this week. Be an individual, speak your mind. And, I, you know, I think in this current climate, again, to harp on that, I feel like this, maybe this is exactly the kind of movie we should be watching. It's, it's, it look at it as a cautionary tale. You know, we'll, we'll kind of consider it from that, from that realm, even though, yes, it is kind of a, a ridiculous comic booky sci-fi thriller. But, you know, even movies like that have something on their mind. So I, I don't think we should take that away from it. Right. Come for the gun caught us. Stay for the moral lesson. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> perfect. That's a perfect way to end it. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. We'll definitely have you back soon. Thank you, Rob. I look forward to it. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.